Hello Internet, and welcome to the very first episode of On War the Podcast. My name is Alistair, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague Austin, and we're here together to discuss the theory and philosophy behind one of the most devastating and powerful influences in all human history. War. So, Austin, who are we? What are we doing? Why are we here? The main point of these sort of discussions is to instigate discussion in this generation about what warfare is, particularly as we enter a new age of conflict. The divide between the Western or traditional conflict method and the more um, what was deemed the Oriental conflict method is certainly growing, and it's worthy of discussion. And that's sort of what we're going to be delving into a little bit here, at least in the first sort of couple of episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to recognize, I think, the way warfare has changed. I mean, there's a, an old thing that pops up now and again that every generation had their war, and previous generations, it was quite clearly defined. I mean, we had the, the Great War and, and that generation, the Second World War and, and the Vietnam War, the Korean War had these very clear lines of demarcation, but for our generation, our war has been this giant thing, this global war on terror, and we had clear campaigns in Iraq that was supposed to be contained but wound up spilling out into a decade-long insurgency in Af Afghanistan the same. Recently, Iraq has popped up again with our um, the Western air campaign against the Islamic State. So these things are, are becoming less clear, so it becomes more important to sort of take a step back and, and, and look backwards at, at, at how this has changed and what we're thinking about it today. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, I guess the other thing to say is, who are we doing this for? Where is this? Where are we pitching this? And what, what are we avoiding doing? And the first thing I would want to say on that is that um, there has been a resurgence in the internet, particularly in military history. Um, a lot of people involved in wargaming, some new computer games and things have spurred a, a renewed interest in a lot of the technology and um, particular battles. And there's lots of wonderful resources out there for that. But this isn't going to be that, is it? What, what, what are we focusing on? So this is this is much more of a theoretical focus to conflict. Um, we're looking at what makes a conflict into what we would perceive as a war, and where is that boundary? I mean, you spoke about previous conflicts, generational conflicts having limitations, having geographic and um, temporal limitations to their conflict and their conduct, and that's not the case now. And so really looking at that transition, and to an extent, critically evaluating the assumption that there is that sort of transition occurring because we do see that there are wars that had similar characteristics, you know, hundreds of years ago. It just wasn't the norm then, and it is increasingly the norm now. So I think that that's the distinction, is that we are looking closer at what makes conflict a war and what philosophical impact and sociological impact does that have on our understanding of human conflict as opposed to directly examining battles or techniques mm, absolutely and i guess the other thing to say is as uh, well as looking at what our audience is going to be and, and who's going to be interested now we're putting this up together this is something we've sort of been toying with this idea for oh, over 18 months now i think um in various incarnations and forms and our initial idea was to create something that other students that um, could participate in. Uh, but now it's putting it up on the, as a podcast. Of course, we want anyone who's interested in this. Of course, it's more than 
welcome to come and join, contribute through the various forms on our uh, blog, which I'll mention later on, and give you the address for it's in the description below as well, um, or in YouTube comments or however else, particularly at, at, at young students getting involved in this at an undergraduate level, will find this very useful, I think. Exactly, and I think that's that's what really spurred this the creation of this in its current form. It has been at least 18 months, I would say, is that there is not available resources to bring together people in this sort of space, in this sort of area in their academic career, early career researchers and students in their undergraduate or postgraduate that are interested in this concept of security and conflict as a delineated field whether that's a focus on terrorism, whether that's a focus on insurgency, whether it's a focus on increasingly different models of conventional conflict, it has always been and it will continue to be very focused on bringing those people into the fold and creating that sort of um, back and forth uh, debate about what we're saying. And I think that's that's the key here is that uh, this is more of a discussion than any sort of, you know, this is what the fact is. And I think if we encourage debate, then we've succeeded. Absolutely. So the other thing I guess we should address right from the start is um, who are we and, and why are we doing this? Why are we in this position that allows us to do this? So I'll start with myself. Um, as I said before, my name is Alistair. I hold an honours degree in politics and public policy from Swinburne University. And I have particular special interests in conflict theory, philosophy, state building and asymmetrical conflict. I'm currently undertaking a master's degree in international development which, if anyone's not quite familiar with what that might be, the best way I can sum it up is how to fix failed countries or build new ones. So that's that's my interest and my focus. Uh, how about yourself, Austin? you want to introduce yourself? Um, so I also did an honours degree at Swimman, uh, specialising in security and counterterrorism. That's where I met Alistair. Um, in terms of my area of interest, it's very much focused on international law, international humanitarian law. Um, what we perceive as conflict and what we allow in conflicts against certain individuals, certain classes of individuals, particularly in some of the less well-known areas of the world is where I'm sort of very focused. Um, currently, in my day job, um, I'm doing in the middle of doing a PhD at the Australian Catholic University, uh, which is my focus on uh, laws of armed conflict. So we're both coming for all this, particularly while we're aiming this at undergraduate students, this is very much a for students but also by students experience so um, that gives us a little bit more flexibility it also means we're not going to be quite so um, high-minded and academic about things at times we like to get into the nitty-gritty a little bit too uh, and also means that you know we're going to be learning as much as our listeners are going to be learning along the way so this gives us an opportunity to conduct research and talk about it at the same time which is our favorite thing to do really this is this is what we do so on that we should probably get started. So this is the introductory. I've, we've covered some of this already, but we sort of want to go along a chronological order. So first of all, what is a war? Um, how do we define that? So I want to I want to start this with um, a quote or an extended quote from um, the a typology of war, which is uh, from an organization that's been tracking and collating modern warfare for quite some time. It's the Correlates of War Project, and this is from uh, one of their papers. And it's, we must define war in terms of violence. Not only is war impossible without violence, except, of course, in a metaphorical sense, 
but we consider the taking of human life prim the primary and dominant characteristic of war. And then in comment to that, uh, one of their later researchers said, um, and this is Sarkis, said, thus their overarching definition of war was sustained combat involving organized armed forces resulting in a minimum of 1,000 battle-related fatalities in a 12-month period. So, I mean, that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? War is about killing people. To an extent, and this is... More than anything, this definition from what it doesn't cover demonstrates the issue that we're sort of grasping here. Now, war is a very particular term, and it comes with its its own philosophical, sociological, and legal baggage, um, so to speak. And so it's it may sound like quibbling, but there is actually quite a substantial impact of reclassifying a conflict as a war. Um, and that that's why we have these issues, and that's why projects like this, the CIW typology of war, exist. Because if you're just saying um, minimum sustained conflict involving organised armed forces resulting in a minimum of a thousand battlefield-related casualties, or fatalities, not even casualties, then beyond some of the larger wars, a lot of the low-intensity wars that could go for years, years and years might not count. Either there's no organized, uniformed, identified armed force on both sides. If it's only one side, then it's a police action. It's not a war, in, in theory, according to this definition. If there's not 1,000 battlefield-related fatalities, that's deaths, in a 12-month period, then it's not a war. So all these low-intensity conflicts we see aren't technically wars based on this definition, although I suspect that if you asked any of the people that are actually involved, they would rather vehemently disagree. And that's, I think, is the core of the issue. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that um, but the problem I have with this is that their initial definition, defining war in terms of violence, war is impossible without violence, and I think to an extent that often becomes true uh, in the practicality of it, but defining it as... as the, the primary and dominant characteristic of war is the taking of human life. I would argue, in fact, that that's not the case, that that is the primary side effect of conflict. And, and now I'm going to um, satisfy everyone's expectations, I think, with the, the classic quote from von Clausewitz, is that war is an act of violence to compel another to our will. It is not isolated, and not an isolated act, but a continuance of political action of which it is an extreme. And later on, of course, we get the classic oft-quoted, oft-misquoted, war is therefore the mere continuation of policy through other means. So for Clausewitz, the use of force alone doesn't capture the issue. It's the use of force to achieve, achieve a certain, usually political, but definable goal. It's compelling someone to your will. And this is part of the issue that we're seeing. You know, the other part of that is that most wars, in fact, a large component of what we would describe as conflict or war, actually doesn't have civilian casualties or even battle-related casualties as its primary outcome. It's actually damage to property. So at what point does that become conflict when all you're doing is damaging civilian property? You know, the initial invasion of Iraq effectively consisted of a, a sustained bombardment 
and that's quite common. To look at von Clausewitz's determination of war and, and this discussion about on war, you can relate it closely to terrorism. Now, even though military history is a larger body of research that's been going on for literally hundreds of years in terms of post-Enlightenment military history, terrorism has only been around for... I mean, terrorism has been around for a long time. Terrorism research really snowballed after 9-11, so 15 years ago. But in that 15 years where terrorism was one of the most funded and the most topical sociological or historical fields of thought and academic research, and had literally millions of dollars pumped into it and dozens of highly respected academics working to, you know, produce works on terrorism and counterterrorism, we still don't have a definition mm. that everyone will agree on. Absolutely. And, and I mean, we will get to um, asymmetrical conflicts and terrorism later on in the series, but this is the broader problem whenever you're dealing with these things, is working with um, definitional changes that enable certain people with different agendas, be that a legal agenda, a political agenda in the form of a state, or even at an, at an academic level, an idea that uh, a certain researcher might have that, that unknowingly biases their position. You wind up with quite a field to work with it. But for now, we'll just keep it contained a little bit um, to some of the more traditional ideas as we work forward. So, Well, this is my point, is that we are looking at the traditional ideas, but I think this is crucial here because war is a continuation of of basically human conflict. It's the epitome of human conflict. And politics is another form of human conflict. Um, we will, It creates an issue here where you know, there is never going to be a, a definition of war, be it asymmetric or otherwise, that everybody agrees on, because it's an inherently politicised term. And that, I think, is crucial to acknowledge before we move on. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you stand on that... Um on that idea of the spectrum, because this is this is my problem, I think, with the way uh, Clausewitz gets used a lot, is that that second quote, the the classic "war is a continuation of policies or other means," gets thrown around a lot in pop popular culture, in literature, in academic research. It's you, you will see it time and time again, but they never look at what comes before that. That idea, that explicit definition, that it's an extreme of existing political action. That, that the realm of possibility in particularly international, but not necessarily only international politics, is a spectrum of action. At one end, um, you might have smiling sweetly and kissing babies, and the idea that, that war is, is simply just the other end of that, I think is an interesting one, and one that needs to be talked about more, but also I don't think people really see they seem to see war as the, the, a declaration of war as, as this demarcation point, that something changes. And I, do, I don't think that's true at all. I think that it, it really is about that, that, that next kind of side of political action, this next kind of thing we can do. But it's very much on that sliding scale. I think that you have to look at the context that Clausewitz was writing in. Clausewitz was writing in. The main section of his military career in terms of the main area he had an ability to experience conflict and grand strategy was in the Imperial Russian Army in the latter stages of, the, of what we now call the Napoleonic Wars. The important thing to remember there is he's in a conflict where he's working for a debt 
what is effectively an autocratic ruler in the Tsar, who is running an extremely politicized army, where to the extent that there's recorded instances of commanders losing battles or failing to turn up as reinforcements in order to, you know, insult or, or make another general look foolish. That's the level of policies we're talking about in the conduct of that war, which he is writing about. And the same with Napoleon and his marshals, who were on the other side of that argument. And at the same time, he's also heavily involved in the rebuilding of the Prussian state along military lines, which then had influences all the way up to the First and Second World War. So I think you do have to evaluate the fact that von Clausewitz is writing these maxims in a period where we're seeing you know, what we would call the first sort of asymmetric conflict in modern firearms warfare in the, in the Peninsula campaign and in the Russian campaign. But he's also looking at a very politicized, very um, geopolitical and, and real politic sort of uh, method of conflict with autocratic rulers making the decisions and they're very politicized cronies. So that is very clear in how he did, how he presents war. I think you have to remember that when you examine how his maxims apply to modern technology, modern yeah, And this is the other thing, whenever you're looking back at different kind of conflicts, which is what something we're going to be trying to do throughout this series, is that the, because it is inherently political, no matter what you're looking at, you have to take into consideration the politics of the time as well as the politics of today looking back. And it's very easy to cherry-pick maxims like Klaus Fitz and and reapply them, but you can also lose a little bit of what he was talking about at the time. So just to just to fast forward a little bit here and, and to kind of bring this to, although we've been trying to avoid doing it a little bit, ultimately what do we say in our position studying this? What, what, what do we say ourselves? What is war about? And for me, I think it's ultimately about power and that ability to, to push through a policy objective. You are trying to achieve something and you're taking a variety of actions. And, and war is never an isolated act either. It's part of a variety of, of negotiations that happen with all sides of the conflict. You have negotiations with, with allies. You have in the modern environment, you have organizations like the United Nations that have to be moved around or bypassed or worked through, as well as, of course, the direct action you're taking against your opponent. And so I think ultimately it's about the manipulation of political power and the demonstration of political power in a lot of different ways. I also agree that at some point you have to find, or at some point it's useful to find lines in the sand where you can look at different intensities of conflict, but I don't think the um, Correlates of War Project's typology is necessarily the best way to do it. And I think that's it's really problematic that we have this thousand battlefield-related battle-related fatalities as like the be-all and end-all in, in academic research. I think that's a big problem. I would agree with you there. I think that um, particularly with low, what we call low-intensity conflict, a low-intensity warfare, it's it's quite possible that you won't hit a thousand battle-related fatalities at least on one side of the conflict if you're talking about direct battlefield deaths as opposed to resulting civilian casualties or, you know, loss of quality of life. I mean, 
particularly with my my PhD research, I've been looking a lot more closely than I used to at Foucault's concept of warfare as a bioreaction. And it makes sense if you look at it in terms of what we have, what we've created amongst around ourselves since the Treaty of Westphalia, and even before that, to under different names, is we create communities of self, um, of individuals who are largely afraid. And I think this applies very much to the Australian context in terms of Australia has this mass uh, sort of political belief that we are under a threat, we are under an attack, military attack, not simply social. And I think that's important to remember because when, when, you look, when you apply that through a Foucauldian lens, an Australian conflict really is about protecting ourselves, protecting the societal body and creating opportunities for that societal body to thrive by eliminating its competition. And I think that that is a very good, in my opinion at least, that is a good overarching method of looking at conflict in general. War in and of itself, I think you do have to create those those boundaries um, between different types of conflict. But I would argue that we need to open our interpretation of what is recognised conflict. Even if we don't call it war, recognised conflict that the laws of armed conflict apply to. Because increasingly what we're seeing is private military contractors, non-human combatants, um, environmental damage from conflict, and non-declared warfare, particularly since the 1980s. And that's not covered by this definition from the COW typology of war, conventions of war people. I think that's the big issue here. We need to broaden. Yeah, and finding those sort of shades of grey as well. I mean, we, amongst ourselves and in our own research and writing, make distinctions all the time between high-intensity and low-intensity conflicts and even high- and low-intensity wars and the language we use to describe them changes. So you definitely do need to be able to to categorize things to a certain extent, but you do need to be careful about that act and, and the implications that, that making those categories have. I think that academics need to become less afraid of, and I think this is all researchers, including ourselves and anyone listening, I think you have to be less afraid of not having the answer of not being able to have a formula, you know, and this is this is part of the, the scientification or whatever word you want to use to describe social sciences over the last, say, 15 years, where we've moved a lot further towards this concept that if you have a theory, if you have a framework that solves everything, then that is the be-all and end-all. And I think war is messy. Everybody knows that. Conflict is messy. I think it's perfectly okay for us not to have a definition of war that covers everything. I think we do make those distinctions in our heads and in our research to an extent. I think as a body, as academics in the security field, we need to be less afraid of not having a solution for everything and being willing to look at individual conflicts as exactly that, individual conflicts that are each affected by their own geopolitical and sociological influences from that region of the world at that time. And given our sort of target audience with this, I think it's worth emphasising, particularly for new students or even people who are just interested and in exploring these topics on their own, not having the answer is and coming to terms with 
perhaps the possibility that you'll never have the answer, but you're still doing something worthwhile is, is really worth capitalizing on and, and emphasizing here. Because lots of people, both more and less educated than you, smarter and not as smart as you, have tried before and come up with all sorts of ideas. And so you know, certainly not coming to a concrete definition yourself is, is, is no small thing. So I just want to, at this point, um, while we're here and, and while we're examining, doing this broad introduction, I want to talk a little bit um, about some of the traditional ideas about war and where that comes from as a, as a backdrop. So the thing I'm thinking of here particularly is um, the traditional idea that, that war is a function of the state, that this is something that a, um, a country, a, a, a governing body embarks upon. Um, why do you think this is? I think it is a holdover from when we had the state as the, the be-all and end-all. And people have to remember that the state as the main function, the main body in international affairs, is not, an, is not actually very old. You're looking at four or 500 years, depending on whether you want to hit the Treaty of Westphalia or a little bit before. Before that, and even after that, what we had was confederations of, of kingdoms of, of less formalized bodies that would, than what we call states now. And if you do any sort of historical work in sort of early modern middle age history, you can't use the terms England or Germany because that's not what they were called at the time. And I think that's important. We have a tendency, and everyone, I suspect, throughout history has had this tendency, this observation bias, to go, this is what we use. We have the state as our main actor in conflict and in international affairs. And so that should be what is normal. But it's simply not the case. Um, you know, look at Southeast Asia, for instance, our neighbours to the north. They have what we would see as a weak state because they have other actors involved. And I think we need to be able to move beyond that. But that's where I think the traditional view of the state as primary comes from, is the fact that that is what we see as the primary. And it's a self-perpetuating uh, concept. There's also, um, in more modern history, and, and when we look back at war, when we use this you know, big capital W concept today, the first thing that comes, I think, to a lot of people's minds are things like the First and Second World Wars, and then perhaps Korea and Vietnam, and to a certain extent, the Gulf War and the invasion of Iraq, perhaps less so the continuing insurgency. So there's a perception that these are big, titanic affairs, and thus require the sort of resources that only a modern state can bring about. Um, the movement of arms and of global, the use of global, you know, global transportation. You have this idea that to, to create a conflict that is a war, with this big capital W and the, the divisions upon divisions and armies and so on, requires huge resources. And I think that lends itself a little bit to this idea of, of lesser wars, insurgencies not being war, police actions and so on, in a lot of people, in a lot of the general understanding of this. And so it becomes sort of less important when perhaps, particularly in, in today's world and, and complex environment, those small intensity conflicts are actually having a much bigger effect. Absolutely. I mean, even if you look at, you know, this is a state-to-state -state conflict, but the Battle of Leipzig 
1814 actually had the largest death toll of any European conflict up to the Battle of the Somme. And that's with muskets and bayonet. You know, you're firing three rounds a minute with a musket, but you can't hit anything with 75 yards away. So the idea that this the modern conflict is what we can determine as war, and even in that, they didn't have, they weren't all states that were participating. You know, look, look back, look further back, and some of the tribal conflicts that happened in the ancient world, you had several thousand people per side. The Seleucid conflicts, um, Roman Empire's conflicts around various people. I mean, the Roman Empire was a state. You know, and we can we can certainly look at that and say that was a state as we would see it now. But a lot of their powerful rivals were not. Equally, look at some of the the wars we had in the Orient, in the East, where you didn't have a state per se. I mean, the, look at the steppe horse people, for instance. They revolutionized and terrorized uh, Europe and most of Asia for years and years. But they weren't a state, and they certainly wouldn't have considered themselves a state. They were a very loose organizational structure. So this idea that war is conflict and war with this big capital W, as you mentioned, Alistair, is confined to the state, I think, is very much based on our what we what we consider when we think of war. And I think that that is certainly not reflective of I reality. Think the other thing to consider as well is that the, this idea of war that we draw on does very much draw on its historical roots in the early discussions, Clausewitz particularly, um, and up to the, the First World War, as um, almost war's noble character, the high politics and the romanticization of, of the of the British officer and, and in in Germany as well of the Prussian military class had as this as this noble endeavor almost. Um, and I think one of the interesting points here is if you look at some of the the historical attitudes in the British Army uh, around this time had uh, British officers who'd seen combat uh, in colonial conflicts being ostracized as not real gentlemen by their comrades who had purchased commissions, but had never actually seen any blood, had never seen a battle. But these officers with combat experience were looked down on because they'd only they'd been involved in those colonial struggles, that that wasn't a gentleman's game. And this this idea of what is a proper war and what is not a proper war is, you know, as as old as inter inter, inter organized tribal conflict. You can trace it back to that. I mean, the earliest we see it that we sort of you know for analysis purposes is the Greek barbarian, which was later adopted by the Romans. And even back then, they had very specific rules for conflict. And this is true across armed conflict laws all the way into the modern era. Although it's more controversial to say that now, um, it's very much the case back back then. The fact is that as long as we've had rules for organized conflict and this idea of a a noble profession being the warrior or the officer, there's always been that exemption. It's always been we act honorably except those people, right? And Edward Said calls this Orientalism, and there's a couple of different – that's just the most famous version of that. And certainly it's worth looking into that if you have time to look at Orientalism. It's certainly worth looking at. I can think of a couple of examples off the top of my head where two things happen. The first is that the laws of war aren't applied to those who aren't European or to those who aren't one of the group they are perceived. 
So medieval chivalry, for instance, didn't apply to lower classes. In fact, in some battles, they weren't even counted as casualties. All the way through to the Napoleonic Wars, again, which is a, a key interest area of mine, after the siege of Accra, Napoleon's troops killed many civilians, several thousand civilians. It wasn't even remarked upon. It didn't even make the paper. It wasn't even worth talking about. The battle itself made the paper because Napoleon was writing his own newspaper at that stage and sending it back to France. But no one, not even his enemies, the British, who were at the time running one of the best propaganda campaigns up to that point in human history, brought it up because it wasn't considered worthwhile. At the time of the Napoleonic Wars, you had on one side the revolutionaries who were considered atheists, people who'd thrown off the natural order, who were going against God, and therefore were not worthy of the same protections as between the other European powers. Of course, both sides used the same time to crush their colonial populations. And at the time, we have the first sort of um, uprisings in Mauritius and in um, what's now Jamaica. What is really interesting, though, is often what we look at now when we go, okay, that was that was honour, that was them being, um, you know, just playing by the rules as they saw them, actually hid another message. So I'll give you an example. The Battle of Fontenoy in 1745 is often used as an example of, of this concept of honour in battle going too far. It's used in things like when people talk about Jane Austen um, novels in terms of how they portray the conflict. In this battle, uh, a regiment of French guards came up against a regiment of British guards, and each, the officers of each, commanded the other to fire first. And the, what we see in the myth is that this showed that they would, it was, they thought it was less honorable to fire first. And so they were, they wanted to prove their manliness and their honor by taking a volley before they would fire back. That fits the narrative, doesn't it? That fits the narrative of what we think about when we think about this honorable conflict. But actually, if you look at documents from the time period, if you look at reconstructions of Napoleonic warfare, whoever fired the second volley often won. In, in the 1700s, if you fired the second volley, you usually won the firefight. And the reason for that is that all of your muskets were already fully loaded. And for your second volley, your guys hadn't been shot at yet. So their second volley was more accurate than the enemy's second volley because those guys were still reloading when they got shot. So things got dropped, things got missed, people fell over and got flattened, this sort of thing. And this, this takes us back to war being a messy thing. And often uh, the narratives that get constructed afterwards don't necessarily take into account not just the political, but also some of the very basic mechanical or geographic um, realities of the time. Absolutely. So we're coming close to the end of this. I guess the final section we want to deal with in this introduction is, is it unavoidable? And this is, this is a huge topic, so it's going to be horribly compressed, but it seems from our discussions and, and from what even your average high schooler knows of history, that armed conflict war, by another name, is seemingly endemic to human civilization. What are your thoughts on this? It's easy to simply say, yes, it is. I think as we go forward further into our development as humanity and people, as we enter this thing called the Anthropocene, where humans are the dominant species, even in geographic terms, there is an opportunity for us to leave warfare behind. I don't think we'll take it. I think warfare is endemic. I do think, though, that warfare is changing. And as warfare changes, it gives us 
opportunities again and again and again to reduce warfare's impact on civilians and civilian property. And to date, we haven't yet fully grasped that. That, I think, is, is where we can go. Um, we certainly see that there are um, a shift away from state versus state conflict and, and more towards what we see as soft power projection. China is the perfect example of this. Ideally, I would argue we should go back to that. But I think that as we move forward in time, war is just going to change. It's not going to go away. Yeah. So a couple of stats I want to bring to this is um, one of the things that comes up in the literature, uh, particularly um, the critical side of security literature, is this idea that the world is actually getting more peaceful, and, and this is this is worth considering. So the Human Security Report, Human Security Report Project, um, tracks the number of state-based battle deaths, and they were down to about two to three per million of world population in 2007, compared to 236 per million in 1950 and 101 in 1971. That's a pretty consistent down uh, decrease. But again, this takes us back to how we're measuring this, because that's state-based battle deaths. And of course, in the 1950s, we have the Korean War. We've just come off the back of the Second World War, and we've got the Korean War starting up. In 1971, of course, we have the Vietnam War. It, it's still somewhat comforting to see that it, it decreases that much. Clearly, something's happening here. Uh, the other data I would want to bring up is the Uppsala Conflict Data Program that tracks um, actual conflicts, not just wars, but any kind of conflict. That also shows a steady decrease up until recently, and this is where I think it's interesting in, in you saying uh, we're not going to take that route, is that the actual number of conflicts that the Uppsala um, Data Program tracks is actually at its highest since 1999, with 11 of these official 1,000 ba battle deaths in a year, so official wars in the mix. And there's a corresponding spike of battle-related deaths in general. And that sort of, this makes us, this the most violent period now, this past five or six years, since the end of the Cold War, which is interesting when you look at the, the, the climate and how that's changing at the moment. I think that's, that's the key, though, here, is if you look at the state-based conflicts, not only are the states not fighting as much as they used to. But to have a state-based conflict, a state v state conflict, you need two states to fight. And I think, and this is reflected in the Uppsala conflict data and also in, you know, anecdotal evidence. We're moving away from that. So it makes total sense that there were 236 per million battle deaths in 1950 because the conflicts were between states. I think what we have to do is to get an accurate reading is look closely at the Uppsala conflict data as opposed to state-based battle deaths. Equally, I think both of these data sets don't take into account the one-sided conflicts. So, for example, Air Wars is a site that tracks um, civilian deaths to their best estimate in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia um, from manned and unmanned airstrikes from all combatants. And it's appalling, the data at the moment, several thousand deaths in each region per year, including areas that aren't being attacked, not officially in conflict or officially at peace. Equally, we're seeing the rise of multinational um, 
unions, so the African Union is an example, and there's several iterations of that, that are engaged in active conflict against non-state entities. Somalia is a perfect example of this. The African Union in Somalia is in active conflict with al-Shabaab and related militias. Neither of those were state-based entities. So neither of those would be considered in a war. It also doesn't reach a 1,000 battle deaths. So again, wouldn't be considered a war. But it is one of the things that's keeping Somalia as the best example of a failed state in the world for well over two decades now. Mm, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're coming towards the end of our uh, time here. Do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to sum up the, this introductory episode? I think that what we're doing is really putting out an opinion on this and everything else that comes after. And it, it is that. It is an opinion based in what what we do and what we research and what we find interesting. And so I think the more this can be interactive, the more we can bring other people in, the more we can get feedback, the better this will get, particularly as we move into the next couple of episodes. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, this podcast isn't just a conversation between ourselves, but a broader dialogue with you, the listeners. So if you have any feedbacks or suggestions at all, please feel free to send us an email at on war the podcast at gmail.com or if you're watching this on youtube in the comment section below if you'd like some further reading you can visit our blog www.onwarthepodcast.wordpress.com where you'll find a list of the various articles websites and other materials we've used in the creation of this episode if you'd like to support the show directly please feel free to visit our patreon page with just a little bit of support, we'll be able to improve our recording equipment, resources, and hopefully even invite some guests further down the line. Of course, the most important thing you can do is share this with any family, friends, or students you think might like it, as well as sending us your own feedback. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight. Join us in two weeks' time when we will discuss democratization theory, the idea that modern democratic states don't go to war with each other. And until then, thank you for listening, and good night.